0: When I moved to Atlanta in the summer of 2008, I was in my late 20s and still trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. I had gotten a very expensive master's degree in creative writing, a field that so far has generated enough income to cover one or two of the student loan bills that have steadily arrived in my inbox for the last 15 years. I was growing increasingly interested in public policy and the ways people use language to inspire and craft legislation like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that sought to dismantle racial inequalities in schools, parks, and other public places and services. Or the Environmental Protection Act of 1970, which recognized that things like clean air and water are kind of important. Also for the first time since childhood, I had started to attend church regularly. A friend had invited me to meet her at a church and I took seriously invitations from members of the congregation to return the next week and the next. As I fell into the reassuring rhythms of regular worship and got to know and be known by a new faith community, I found myself working on a couple of small farms on the outskirts of Atlanta. I was weeding and watering fields that grew turnips and strawberries and tomatoes and squash as God was tilling the soil of my soul. You are God's field, Paul tells us. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg is interested in the relationship between language and loam, between how we care for ourselves and our souls and the earth around us. In her most recent book, The Hidden Order of Intimacy, Reflections on the Book of Leviticus, a real page-turner, I've got to recommend it to you all, she explores the Hebrew word siach. She says, siach refers both to vegetation and to language. What has not yet come into the world is the subject of the human discourse about the field specifically the trees of the field. Human discourse, she writes, is primarily concerned with the economics of daily existence. Have the trees borne fruit? Has the wind destroyed the harvest? But first, the trees themselves, as it were, talk to one another. Leafy branches sway and rustle in the wind— This is discourse in its mythic, animistic form, the life force in nature, as an ongoing conversation. Ultimately, Zornberg says, there is siyak as prayer. This, too, is basically about the earth and its products and the human need for sustenance. On a different level, prayer is concerned with the holy temple, which is also called a field. This, she says, is the most spiritually evolved form of human discourse. In the spiritual lives of the poets and writers who composed the psalms and the books that Jesus would have read and heard recited in temple, trees and grasses, flowers and animals all had the power to speak, and their speech is a form of prayer. Now, they might not employ an alphabet or rhetoric, but... Every species of creation has its own language, its own forms of self-expression, and in expressing itself, it also tells us something about God. The German priest and mystic Meister Eckhart said, every single creature is full of God and a book about God. He also said that he would never have to prepare a sermon if he spent enough time considering even the smallest creature, even a caterpillar. I thought of redirecting you all to the zoo this morning, but couldn't figure out how to get the message out to the whole congregation. The regard for plants and animals isn't a guarantee of ethical excellence or purity. There are plenty of gardeners and conservationists throughout history who did not treat their human companions with the same consideration they did the ravens of the air and the lilies of the field. Nevertheless, it can be a way to expand communion and encounter the living God. In her book, Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden, Camille Dungy begins one chapter by recounting a story in which she admonished her daughter playing rather rambunctiously outdoors, don't hurt that tree. Trees are people too. Now, such a claim might strike you as whimsical or silly or absurd, depending on how you think about trees or how you think about people. And I'll spare you the long interrogation of our tendencies to anthropomorphize nature. But I do think that there's theological value in demonstrating care for the more-than-human world as we do for our human family. Later in the chapter, Dungy writes, If I understand God as separate, as above all creation, then what happens elsewhere to others may not matter much to me. But let me believe God is in all creation, that birds and beasts and boulders and streams are all part of God's body. How much better might I treat the lives around me? Let us believe that we are indeed God's field, which would allow us to recognize, as Paul suggests, that there are patterns and influences larger than ourselves and beyond our control. When I was working on those farms in Atlanta, we could be as methodical as our intelligence and physical stamina allowed us to be, but we couldn't tell the rain when to come or to stop. We couldn't set the temperature the way that we adjust thermostats in the buildings we inhabit. And so sometimes a flood would ruin a field, and sometimes we could not keep birds and bugs from getting to crops. But just as it was beyond our control to prevent pestilence and bad weather, our labors, however diligent and ingenious, did not create strawberries and tomatoes and potatoes. These were God's gifts. So the growth in us isn't a mark of us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but a gift from our Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. We all go through seasons of drought and seasons of flood. I'm aware of the particular heaviness of that metaphor in Houston, Texas. There will be days and weeks, maybe months and years when you feel as if whatever you have, it's not enough. Whatever you're doing, it's not fulfilling you or those you are in relationship with. And sometimes you'll feel overwhelmed. There are too many opportunities, too many responsibilities. I would remind you, as I must routinely remind myself, of Jesus' invitation to let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Setting healthy boundaries on our calendars and emotions can be like creating the proper irrigation and crop rotation for a field. Their presence doesn't guarantee fruit but their absence guarantees failure we are nearing the end of the season after the epiphany soon we will enter the season of Lent and in each liturgical season we carry with us particular questions and apply specific lenses through which we examine our relationship with God and one another and all of God's creation During this season after the Epiphany, we consider the particular ways that God has made God's self manifest to us, as the Christ head in the baby Jesus was made manifest to the Magi. How might we sense the manifestation of God if we were to think of ourselves, to treat ourselves as God's fields? In what ways might this liberate us from harmful patterns? To see some connection between how and who and what we pray for. Theologian Willie James Jennings notes that the posture of the gardener and the posture of the prayer are the same. Kneeling. Supplicant. Hopeful. If we live the premises of our faith that God cares deeply and profoundly about us, and not only us, but birds and forests, laws and legumes, the smallest and grandest elements in all of creation, we are honoring the invitation of our ancestor, Moses. Now choose life, so that you and your descendants will live By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by clinging to him.